Several years ago, my wife Amy and I were able to go and attend one of those author conversations that are sometimes sponsored at local bookstores or universities and colleges in the area. And the special guest that particular day was Annie Lamont. Annie is the author of the best-selling book, Traveling Mercies, amongst other things. And uh, in the course of the conversation, uh, Ms. Lamont talked about a, uh, a dialogue she'd had some uh, time before with a Jesuit priest. And the Jesuit priest was commenting on his sense of the state of American culture. In the course of his remarks, he observed that he felt that America was increasingly living by five rules that were actually stifling the quality of community, collaboration, and creativity that could have been the genius of our nation if we had leaned into a different way of coming at life. He said these are the five rules increasingly dominating us today. Rule number one, don't be vulnerable. Don't be vulnerable. Two, if you are vulnerable, get over it as fast as you can. Rule number three, if you can't get over it, pretend that you have. Number four, if you can't pretend, don't show up because it upsets the rest of us. And rule number five, if you do show up, be deeply ashamed of that. Now, I recognize that that description of our culture's life may be hyperbole, a bit melodramatic, but in too many places, I suspect, in homes, in churches, in schools, in workplaces of many kinds, those rules are in force. And today, as we wrap up the series of reflections that we have been doing on the subject of vulnerability, I want to issue to you this simple challenge. Dare to defy those rules. Even if you find, as you move through life, many, many other people who are living by those practices— Even if you encounter, in many places you enter, others who are trying to enforce those practices, dare to live a different kind of life. Refuse to be driven by shame, by the idea that there is something intrinsically bad about you that has no solution. Refuse to be driven by shame. At all costs, make the choice that you will not live your life according to a a mindset of scarcity, a sense that there's not enough of love or hope to go around. And refuse to live by the world's limited concept of strength, its disfigured, distorted understanding of what real strength means. Believe with all of your heart that God loves you passionately, perseveringly, personally. And let that reality be the central energizing truth of your entire life. Hold fast to the belief that there is nothing so wrong with you or other people, nothing so lacking from our lives, nothing that is so afflicting us, piercing our flesh, that the all-sufficient grace of God cannot forgive or fill or fix or use or carry you through it. 
Hold fast to that dependable belief, that great assurance. Go back if you need to and listen to the other messages in this series if you start to forget these things. If you missed any one of the episodes, we've had a number of wonderful speakers on this subject. Go back online. You can find all of the messages there. And soak in the truths we've been trying to drive home here. But here's the big headline. This is the great idea that's overarching all that we've been talking about. If you put your trust in the person and the power of God... It is not only okay to be vulnerable, it is your mission. It is a central part of your mission for reasons I want to review once more with you. Tim Keller puts it this way in his marvelous message, The Meaning of the Gospel. Christ, the God we follow, the Lord we serve, Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth by giving all away. Those who receive his salvation are not the strong and accomplished. At least that's not their defining identity. But those who admit that they are weak and lost without God's grace, when we understand that we are saved by sheer grace through Christ, we stop seeking salvation, says Keller, in power, perfection, control, status, competition, or material wealth. The cross, he writes, liberates us from bondage to this world's rules. It crucifies, in a sense, our dependence on identity and security in this world's set of rules. And this is the part I love most. He says, the gospel creates a people with a whole alternate way of being human. An alternate way of being human, of moving through life in this world. That's what I want to think about with you as we close today this series of messages on the nature of vulnerability. I want to invite you to think with me about this alternate way of being human. And I want to challenge all of us, including myself, to live into a different way of being human. In particular, two things each of us can do to be part of advancing this kingdom-oriented way of doing life. Here is the first practice that I want to invite us to take on together. Let us dare to make the church scandalously safe for vulnerable people. Make the decision today that you're going to be part of an effort that turns this community of faith or whatever church you happen to attend on a regular basis into a place that is scandalously safe for vulnerable people. It is hard for us, I think, sometimes to fully get how scandalous was the way of Jesus. 
How, how unusual, how remarkable, how stunning, staggering, and upsetting was the way Jesus handled people. We sometimes try and reduce this, I suspect, perhaps out of a fear that we would be called to a more radical way of life ourselves. But there was a reason that the religious people of Christ's day were disgusted with him. Right? They didn't simply find Jesus a little bit annoying. They were disgusted with him. They, they were reviled by him. They were, they were so shaken by the way Jesus did life that they determined he had to be eliminated from the cultural scene. And when they, when they spat out the criticism, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It was with a very pained look on their faces. You see, unlike the religious people of Jesus' day, or perhaps of any culture and time, Christ did not wait for people to get their act together before embracing them. Jesus did not wait for people to put their piety on first. He did not wait for them to change their language, to alternate their dress code, to get it just right, and then he would be able to embrace them. He didn't say, look at my disciples, organize yourself so you fit in here, and then you can come and follow me. On the contrary, Jesus treated people in the way that is beautifully described, I think, by the parable he tells of the prodigal son, in which the father in the story, as you know well, sees his errant, confused, broken uh, son coming up over the hill, and before he has any evidence that the son has changed anything about his behavior and his character, hikes up his fatherly skirts, forgets his dignity, runs down the lane, and throws his arm around his son, his arms around his son, welcoming, welcoming him home. Jesus didn't just tell stories like this about the character of God. Jesus did it in the flesh again and again and again. Jesus welcomed cussing fishermen. You ever met dock workers before? Right? I mean, he, I know the scriptures perfume it for us, but these were hardcore working men. He welcomed these kinds of guys into his fellowship. Jesus took on vile tax collectors. The most cynical rip-off artists in the ancient world. They were drawn into his fellowship. Jesus showed a, a care and compassion for multiple divorcees, for messy, noisy children, for oozing, suffering, sore-filled, sick people like lepers. Jesus took into his presence and confidence hardcore sex workers and serious skeptics. Don't let our reading of the Bible so deaden us to the radical, scandalous things that Jesus did that we forget. How amazing was this way of life? Jesus didn't just welcome these people. He didn't just tolerate them being in the building. His form of welcome was not simply to say, oh, hi. Have a nice day. Jesus sat down and ate with these people, the Bible says. 
And in the ancient world, this was a big deal. There were all these rules about who you could eat with. There was a great deal of concern about ritual purity and not getting tainted, especially if you were religious, by contact with the wrong kind of people. Jesus gathered them around tables and broke bread and shared utensils with very vulnerable, in many cases very broken, sinful, hurting, struggling people. He showed a scandalous amount of acceptance and embrace to them. So here's my question. Why isn't his church like that? Why isn't every church in every corner of this globe exactly like that? We call him Lord. We say we are his disciples, his imitators. Why is the church not the most scandalously safe place on all the earth to be a vulnerable person? Author Philip Yancey tells a story of of a conversation he had with a man in his church who couldn't help but compare his experience of being late to the worship service at his church over and against the experience of showing up late for his Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. He said that when he's late for church, he's... He has this distinct feeling from everybody's body language, if not from the things they're whispering and what they're saying with their eyes, that he is entirely irresponsible for having come here late. And they begrudgingly move their knees to let him go by and they show disgust as he blocks their view of the the choir and And he says, that's been my experience in my church. I love my church. I keep going to my church. But that's honestly been my experience. It's very different when I go to my AA meeting. He says, when I go to that meeting, the the meeting stops. I mean, it stops, but not to glare at me. I had a professor in college. If I'd show up late to his class, he would stop in mid-syllable. I think that's possible. And he would just glare at me with disgust and contempt until I found my way to my seat. And then he would pick up on that syllable so as not to give me the benefit of the full thought to make me never do this again. The meeting stops when I walk into AA, this man said. But not for that reason. Everybody jumps up to hug me because they realize... I almost didn't make it. (laughs) I almost didn't make it. They're just so glad that my need for them and for what God does in our midst has won out over the pull of everything else in my life, especially the alcohol. Commenting on this story, blogger John Fisher asks, what's the difference here between the church experience and the AA experience? What's the difference here? And Fisher responds, the answer is the whole truth. The people who who got to church on time, they, they got that one thing right. It's good to get to church on time. Don't get me wrong. 
It's an, it's an act of respect. And you don't want to miss out on what happens in a church service. Uh, but, but the folks that get to church on time may have a, a bunch of other things that is not right with them. Uh, lots of things that are wrong with them, making them just as needy as an alcoholic is. Fellowship isn't going to mean anything, says Fisher, if we don't recognize the whole truth about ourselves. Real fellowship means stepping into the light of that whole truth, of God's truth. And when we bring ourselves to the light, we discover we're not alone. There's a room full of other believers all struggling with something too. And that sense of shared need for God's grace and the help of others, it is the bond that holds us together. So if we truly love Jesus, if we genuinely follow him as Lord, if we are disciples of Jesus, we will make this place the most scandalously safe place to be vulnerable that a human being could find anywhere on the earth. And they will find a place of welcome at the table of our fellowship and the encouragement that they need to live into the even greater potential that they can find in Christ and his community. That's my first challenge for us, to do our parts, to dare to make this place that kind of place. Creating that kind of alternate way of being human, however, is going to happen a whole lot faster if we model the behavior that we want to be okay for other people. And that's why my second and final challenge for us today is to dare to be vulnerable yourself. To not just let the preacher do it, right, or the person on the video do it but to dare to be vulnerable yourself. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in our scripture lesson for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry. Everything in life for the Christian is in the context of the mercy of God. It's the thing that, 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 that lets us in to his ministry. It's the thing that makes it okay for us to be imperfect even as we're doing his ministry. It's the, his mercy is the thing that inspires us to try and grow. Therefore, since we, through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We're not ruled by fear, discouragement, loss of heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shame-filled ways. Our life is not about secrets anymore. It's like we're, not, we're not just not driven by shame anymore. Because we've got an identity and a security in God that no one can take away from us. Even if we're, we're still growing, even if we're still filled with, with sins and that God is sanctifying, we're not driven any longer by shame or secrets. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God, but on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly by living in the truth 
We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I want to stop right there and think with you for just a moment and just share with you something that every other pastor of our church could, could equally share. One of the things we do most frequently is just sit with people as they do get vulnerable, as they do unpack their stories of what's going on in their lives. And these are holy moments, okay? These are, oh, these are wonderful, beautiful moments. Even when somebody's sharing something that's pretty messed up, you know, they've done some bad things. There is a holiness to that moment of confession when they dare to pull away the veil from the secret and are known for the condition they're in. And so often, as we sit with people and they're talking about the pain in their parenting or the, or the mess in their marriage or the, the financial troubles they're in or the, the, the moral crisis that, that, that they've gotten themselves into or the pattern of addiction or compulsivity that's running them, that's piercing them like a thorn in the flesh. So often as people are telling us these things, we will ask them, is there anybody else you're sharing this with? Is there somebody else in the church that you're talking about this with? And most of the time the answer is no. And we say, why? Why? And they say, oh, I, I, I couldn't do that. It would be humiliating. Uh, people would reject me. I mean, they would think that I'm weak or stupid, or bad. Not enough grace to go around, they think. So they keep the secret. They use the deception. Hi, how are you? Great. Everything's just fine. We keep trying to tell people that we know that for most of us, everything's not fine. You may be in one of those great fine seasons. Praise God for that. Ride that wave as long as you can. But you know it's going to hit the beach sometime. It happens for all of us. It won't be fine. You will not be expelled from the church by admitting that. You will actually not be breaking down the church by being vulnerable. You will be building the true kind of church, the alternate way of being human, through your vulnerability. Ken Robinson observes that one of the tragic ironies of modern life is that so many people actually feel isolated from one another by the very feelings they have in common. Isn't that weird? Most people have fears and anxieties and and, and, and troubles and a feeling of failure in different areas of your life, a sense of not being enough. And it's those very feelings, which we all have, that keep us from connecting with each other, from the compassion and connection that would exist if we were vulnerable. How do you feel yourself when somebody dares to be vulnerable with you about some struggle in their life? Does it send your respect for their courage up or down? How many would say up? 
does it does it tend to to decrease or increase your sense of compassion and connection with them when they're vulnerable? How many would say increase? Yeah. It always does it for me. It always does it for me. So what is it beyond stubborn human pride, conceit, as Paul would call it, that stops us from daring to be more vulnerable. Because if even Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus could cry out, my soul is overwhelmed. My own human strength is not enough. I am overwhelmed with sorrow. Please stay here and keep watch with me. If even Jesus could do this, what stops you and me from speaking the truth more often and asking people for the support and the prayer that they would actually like to give if they knew of the need? I want to note, as I make this invitation to you, that there needs to be a caution or a sensitivity that companions this invitation. And I think it is well articulated by author Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, from which I've taken the title of this message. Vulnerability, writes Brown, is based on mutuality. Vulnerability is based on the capacity for mutuality, for an exchange it requires boundaries and it, it requires trust. It is not, vulnerability, get this clearly, is not oversharing. It's not TMI, too much information. Vulnerability is not purging, you know, vomiting out everything. Vulnerability is not indiscriminate disclosure. Vulnerability is not the celebrity-style social media information dumps, this form of narcissism that's become popular in our age. Vulnerability, she says, is about sharing our feelings and our experiences with people who have earned the right to hear them. So pick your audience thoughtfully. I think the church could be a safe place for you. Pick it thoughtfully, but dare to speak the truth. I think we will know we are speaking the truth when you start hearing more of these kinds of phrases that I want to list for you in the, in the common speech of, of all of us. Uh, here, here's one. I disagree. That's vulnerable. Can we talk about it? I disagree. Can we talk about it? Or it didn't work. That thing that I tried that you saw me do that I fell on my face about, it didn't work. But I learned a lot. Or yes, I did it. I plead guilty. I did it. Or here's what I need. Or here's how I feel. Or I'd like some feedback. I need it. Can you give me your take on this? Or, or, or what can I do better next time around? 
Or can you teach me how to do this? Because you just seem to know how, and I don't. Can you teach me? Or I, I played a part in that. You know that whole thing that everybody's talking about? I'm in. I was part of it. I have some accountability for it. I'm here for you. I really am. I want to help. Or let's move on. Because I'm really, really sorry. Or that means a lot to me. Or just saying thank you. Thank you. I guess my point here today is that if you want to experience greater freedom, like we've been talking about in this series of reflections, if you want to exert a greater creative influence on shaping a culture that is actually more like the kingdom of God than the kingdom of human beings, if you want to do that in this church or in any other circle that you are entering, then things have to change. We have to confess uh, more frequently and vulnerably our sins to trustworthy people. We need to admit our fears and struggles more regularly. We need to describe our dreams, the things that are so precious to us, we hesitate to mention them lest somebody steps on them. We have to dare to talk about our dreams and hopes with one another. We have to ask for what we want. So often Jesus would say, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We need to acknowledge that we do not have it all and understand that that's all right and that we're just grateful to be in the hands of a God who does have it all, who does understand it all. Keep daring to believe, as I said last week, that your greatest weakness might actually become God's greatest platform. Remember that Jesus was never so weak As when he hung on a cross in anguish, bleeding and dying there, stripped of every earthly protection, every source of identity and security. He was never, in human terms, so weak. And yet you name for me one place where anyone has ever been so strong in the power of God and exerted from that place greater influence for blessing and hope and help. As Paul writes, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What he's saying there is that we were in the darkness. We were lost in human ways of doing things. We, we could not see what the kingdom looked like. And so Jesus came and modeled it for us. The power of God in weakness. He gave us the light to see this alternate way of being human. So let me close our time together by leaving you with an image that may help you take this idea with you, that may elucidate a bit more this verse we've just read and the ones that will immediately follow. In the ancient world, as today, light was a very precious thing. They didn't have electricity. They couldn't flick a switch. Light was an extremely precious thing. So this is what they did. 
they went to the marketplace often. They found in the marketplace these these little containers, I guess their own version of the container store in those days. They found these little containers, and they bought lots of them, as many of them as they could afford. These little containers were very ordinary things. They were just jars, really, made of clay. They were vulnerable little objects, vulnerable to chipping and cracking, and they did chip and crack a lot, which is why you needed to have a bunch of them. But their ultimate value did not lie in their strength. Their ultimate value didn't lie in their strength. Their ultimate value lay in the fact that they could be filled with some paraffin or or some congealed oil and have a wick put in them. And when you set a flame to that particular wick, even the cracks and the chips in the jar became an asset because you could see even more of the light that emanated out from them. Do you understand the import of that image for your life? For we have this treasure, this light we've been given in jars of clay, writes St. Paul, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God himself and not from us. And I want you to not forget that there is someone who wants you to forget that. I want to take you back to the very beginning of the series and remind you that there is in this world a slithering evil that does not want you to see the truth. There is an evil that keeps hissing in your your ear and the ear of every human being a message of shame and scarcity and a distorted understanding of strength. He just thrills at the havoc, this false religion. Is, is, is having in the world from the Middle East to Washington to the schools and homes and workplaces that we occupy. The serpent is working overtime to make sure that we never really get a clear view of what has been God's steady, consistent, abundant intention since the very beginning. The serpent is worried that we are going to find out That from the very start of things, from that very first moment when God, the Bible, Genesis says, scooped up dust from the earth and molded the clay in his hands into a container and breathed the light of his life into it. From that moment on, it has always been okay. To be a jar of clay, to be a vulnerable vessel, so long as you were filled with the light of God and his love for other people. God still wants us to know this. He wants our lives to be changed by this. 
He wants us to show the world an alternate way of being human. But because it was so hard for us to take it in, because the work of the serpent has been good, effective, powerful, corrupting, God had to do something even more scandalous, (laughs) even more out of the box, even, even, even more imaginative. And so when he could have shouted at us from the heavens or sent angel armies to overrun the world, he did what Satan could never have expected and which Satan has never been able to overcome. God made himself vulnerable. The vast God of creation. made himself into the most vulnerable little jar of clay you can find. A human baby. And he allowed that little jar to be placed in an ordinary manger in the dark, dank stable of a forgotten little town off in the armpit of the ancient world. And yet from that little jar, there shone out a light that has reached so broadly that it is still piercing the darkness and calling people back into communion with their creator and to the community of a new kind of humanity led by Jesus Christ our Lord. That, however, is a story for another day and for the season that is about to be upon us. Would you join me now as we come before the Lord in prayer? Great God, you keep doing it. You keep working with ordinary jars of clay. Your scriptures tell us that Abraham was elderly, that Elijah was suicidal, that Joseph was a braggart, Job went bankrupt, Moses had a speech impediment, Gideon was afraid, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, Noah drank too much, Jeremiah was young and naive, Jacob was a liar and a cheater, David was an adulterer and a murderer, Jonah ran from you. Naomi was a widow. Peter was a blowhard. Martha was a worrier. Zacchaeus was small and greedy. The Samaritan woman was divorced many times. Eleven of the first twelve disciples abandoned Jesus. Paul was a judgmental Pharisee and a killer. And yet you came into each one of them and you filled them. You filled the earthen vessels of their vulnerable lives and you made these weak people agents of your all-surpassing power and strength. Don't let us forget this. If any one of us has been relying on our power and not asked you, not yet asked you to fill our jar with your forgiving grace, your marvelous light, then let today be the day of decision, Lord, the turning point for whoever needs that. Come into that life right now 
Help that precious soul start a new relationship with you and your people today. And help those of us, Lord, who already call ourselves your disciples to make your church a place of scandalous safety for others, a place where imperfect people meet stunning love and amazing grace and move us toward that reality by giving us courage to be vulnerable before one another. Then send us out. Send us out, Lord, to dare great things for your kingdom, to live truly fearless and worthy lives because the all-surpassing power for that alternate way of being human lies in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.